Good morning. Good morning. Well, as uh, Jim prayed for other local churches, I'd like to uh, just briefly bring your attention to an opportunity to have fellowship with a like-minded local church. Our brothers and sisters down at Grace Community Church, uh, Pastor Brian Borgman's church down in Minden, they do a conference every spring on various different topics. And uh, this year, the conference is on living as a Christian in a post-Christian world. This is a free conference that they do. I think it's Friday night, Saturday all day. And then they have some, uh, some things on Sunday. But we received some uh, flyers from them to invite us to join them in that conference. So that's certainly an issue that is pressing on a lot of people's minds. So I would encourage you, uh, pick up a flyer in the back. You do have to RSVP as they provide lunch for the Saturday portion of the conference. But it's an opportunity to go and have fellowship with uh, brothers and sisters in another local body and to receive some, uh, some very good teaching and helpful instructions. So again, those are in the back for you there. And that's the first week of March, I believe. Well, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, as we continue in our study through Matthew's gospel this morning, Matthew chapter 11 is where we'll be today. Matthew chapter 11. Whether you are uh, old, whether you are young, one of the most painful parts of life uh, is dealing with unmet expectations. Uh, Proverbs 13, 12 says that hope deferred makes the heart sick, and uh, all of us have no doubt felt that, right? Things at work don't go a certain way. A promotion we're expecting to get goes to somebody else. Uh, a person that we are uh, in relationship with turns out to be much different than we thought, or the, the life that we've been dreaming of, that we've been pursuing, falls apart, right? There is that crushing feeling of unmet expectations that all of us are familiar with. And, and, and unmet expectations rarely just stay there, right? Usually when others fail us or when we fail ourselves or when we think God has failed us, we often become angry, depressed, distanced, bitter. We struggle when our expectations are not met, right? Well, this morning in our text, John the Baptist, the great John the Baptist himself, struggles with unmet expectations about Jesus, even coming to the point where he questions whether Jesus is actually the Messiah. Not because John doesn't believe in the Messiah, but because his expectations for the Messiah are unmet. But for John's sake and for ours, Jesus reaffirms he is indeed the coming Christ. And he reminds both John and us that God is not obligated to meet our expectations, but rather that we are called to meet his. Let's read our text starting in Matthew Chapter 11, verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent words by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our God and our King, you are good. You are holy, a righteous God, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And Lord, we thank you that you are so patient with us, that you know our struggles so well, that you recorded the very struggles of John the Baptist here for our sake that we might have our faith re-strengthened in Christ. 
Lord, would you be with us today as we hear your word? And Lord, I do pray if there are those who are, are particularly struggling with unmet expectations today, Lord, that they would see that we are satisfied in Christ alone. Lord, we pray for your help in hearing your word and receiving it. And Lord, we pray for your help in submitting ourselves to your good and gracious will. Holy Spirit, help us to understand and to do your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we have come through Matthew chapter 10 as Jesus has described to his disciples uh, the need to prepare for persecution. He has described to his disciples the need to place a, a ultimate love, we could say, upon Christ rather than family members, rather than our own lives, rather than the things of this world. And so we got to verse 1 of chapter 11 last week. Jesus finishes, finishes instructing his disciples and uh, they part ways. Jesus goes out into the villages and towns of Galilee uh, to preach and proclaim the kingdom, and his disciples do the same. But in the midst of all of this, as Jesus is talking to his disciples, sending them out, John the Baptist receives a report about the deeds of the Christ. Uh, Luke 7 actually adds, us, uh, adds some detail for us here. Uh, John's in prison, if you recall, and his disciples actually bring him this report while he is in prison. They come and they tell him what Jesus has been doing. And we've seen in Matthew 8 and 9, if you recall, the wonderful miracles Jesus has been performing. But again, John has been in prison since Matthew chapter 4 for, for quite some time. And he was thrown into jail as a result of preaching against the unlawful sinful act of King Herod, who had taken his brother's wife to be his own wife, uh, committing adultery. And John publicly preached against this and Herod's new wife, Herodias, uh, was not happy about John's public commentary. And so in order to make her happy, King Herod had John arrested, right? Happy wife, happy life doesn't always go so well. Uh, so John's disciples, they come and they visit him in prison. They tell John about what Jesus has been doing. They say, hey, here's what Jesus, the, the Christ, has been doing. Here are his deeds. And if you recall, we've seen Jesus do some pretty amazing things, right? He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's preached good news. He's cast out demons. He has done wonderful, incredible works of power. And so we, we would think that John, hearing this report, would be encouraged. Wow, listen to those things that, that Jesus is doing. That's amazing. How exciting. That's what we would expect, probably. But that's not what we see. Instead of being encouraged, instead of being happy and excited and rejoicing, John responds in an unexpected way. He sends back two of his disciples to Jesus with the question that we see in verse 3. It says to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? That's the question John has for Jesus, his messianic confusion. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, this is a pretty surprising question coming from John the Baptist, coming from the person who was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, who baptized Jesus and witnessed the triune affirmation of Jesus as the Son of God, seeing the Holy Spirit come down, the voice from heaven proclaim, this is my beloved Son. 
This is quite a surprising question coming from the very person who proclaimed the need for repentance in light of the coming kingdom. And yet here he is asking, are you the one who's to come or should we look for another? Jesus, are, are you really the Messiah or, or is that actually somebody else? That's what he's asking. And notice that this question is brought up, not randomly, but in response to the deeds he hears about. John hears that Jesus is doing these miracles and, and he is led to question if Jesus is really the Messiah. We can't miss that. It's not like Jesus is doing bad things. He's not, you know, doing highway robberies or anything like that. It's not that Jesus is doing nothing. He's not just sitting around. He's doing these wonderful things. Preaching, healing, casting out demons. So why would this report of such wonderful works lead John to question whether or not Jesus is the Messiah? That's what we have to ask. And I think John's question reveals some pretty important things here to us. First, John is not doubting that God you know, will or, or even is sending the Messiah. He believes that to be true. He believes God is doing something. He asks, should we look for another? He's expectant that there is a Messiah coming. So he's not losing faith in, in, in God or, or anything like that. He believes God's doing something. But at the same time, this question reveals that Again, John is really wondering, is Jesus actually the Messiah? He's confused because of what he's hearing. And what it comes down to is this. What John hears Jesus is doing does not line up with what John expects Jesus to be doing. What John hears that Jesus is doing does not line up with what John expects Jesus to be doing. The, the deeds of the Christ that Matthew mentions here are not what John thought the Messiah would do. In other words, John had expectations for the Messiah that differ from the reality of the Messiah. And this has led John to be confused. It's led him to question. It's led him ultimately to have some doubt that Jesus really is the Messiah. And we're, we're not told exactly what leads John here in the text, right? It would be nice if we had some more detail about exactly where John's heart was at or his thought process here. But... If we think about a situation, we, we can come up with some pretty good guesses here. The Messiah has come, but John's sitting in prison. The Messiah has come, but the Romans still rule. The Messiah has come, but Judea is not free. The, the Messiah has come, but the Pharisees still lay heavy hypocritical burdens on people. The Messiah has come, but nothing's changed. Wasn't this coming one supposed to turn all of this upside down? Wasn't he supposed to bring this great kingdom of peace in which, which the, the Jewish people would reign supreme, liberated from the Romans? Wasn't the Messiah supposed to bring in this kingdom where true, righteous worship would, would happen and occur? But nothing's changed from John's perspective. So you can imagine why John might have some struggles here. He's probably expecting the Messiah to come bring judgment upon the Romans. He's expecting the Messiah to be doing these certain things, bringing judgment, bringing in a kingdom, not going around healing people with miracles. Doesn't Jesus know there's bigger fish to fry? Right, and think about John's own message too. What did John proclaim? It was a message of repentance, a message of repentance, of coming judgment. And John preached that message faithfully. He preached it well. And no doubt he imagined that that 
coming judgment was coming very, very quickly. But now John's in prison and things are not going at all how he thought they would. And he is upset. He's struggling here. John's not in a good place. And maybe you can relate to John a little bit here. Maybe, maybe you've experienced this kind of disappointment where you expect things to go a certain way, but they don't. And that causes you to wrestle with God. And maybe suffering happens to you that causes you to wonder if God really loves you. Or maybe that even leads you down the road to be angry with God because your expectations are not met. Uh, perhaps you, you don't get something you're really hoping for, you're really expecting, which causes you to wonder if God really can provide. And maybe you end up being bitter or having a hard time trusting God. Sometimes God does not meet our expectations. Sometimes other people do not meet our expectations. And how we respond to that is very revealing of our heart. I read somewhere as a you know, relationship expert, unmet expectations are the number one killer of relationships. And that's just not true. It's responses to unmet expectations that are the number one killer of relationships. When other people or when God don't meet our expectations and we get upset with them, who are we really trying to put on the throne of life? Ourselves, right? When God fails to meet our expectations and we get mad at Him or we get depressed, who are we really believing should be in control of the universe? Ourselves, right? So a sinful response to unmet expectations reveals that we think we are really the center of the universe, that we could do a better job than God, and that everyone else should serve us and our plans, even the God of the universe. Now, we don't know exactly, again, where John's heart, at, heart is at here in asking this question. But it's very clear that his unmet expectations are causing him to be somewhat upset, somewhat confused, to wrestle with doubt, to be discouraged. It's what leads John to wonder if Jesus really is the Messiah. But John doesn't give up on Jesus. He doesn't just stop talking to Jesus. He asks a question. And that's a good thing to do. When we're wrestling with those unmet expectations, when we're struggling, it is good to ask questions. Right? That's a biblical model. That's something we see over and over in Scripture, bringing those questions to God. Not accusing, but bringing questions to Him. That's what John does here to Christ. And as we'll see next, in the next section of the text, Jesus will answer John and address his messianic confusion. And in doing so, try to help bring John to a better understanding of who the Messiah is and what he is to be doing. And we see that in our next point, Jesus' messianic confirmation, verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6. Now Jesus hears this question from the disciples of John, and he doesn't take it personally, like you or I might. What do you mean, am I, you know, am I not the Messiah? Are you serious? Did you see all those things I was doing? Come on, John. That's not how he responds. He's very patient, but he's very honest, and, and he gives an answer to John's disciples. He says in, in verse 4, go back to John, tell him what you hear and what you see. Now, we look at Luke 7, which is the account of the same event here. Um, and, and Luke tells us that actually 
in between the disciples asking their question and Jesus answering their question, Jesus actually performs more wondrous works. Right? Uh, Luke 7.21 says, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. So the timeline is like this. Jesus sends his disciples off. John's disciples come to Jesus. They ask him, Hey, are you the Messiah or is there somebody else we should look for? And Jesus says, Hold on a second. Does these you know, miraculous works again. And then says, Go back and tell John everything you just saw me do. Everything you just heard me say, go back and tell John these things. In other words, bear witness to me, reaffirm to John the things that I'm doing. The report is true. Jesus doesn't apologize to John. Right? Uh, Jesus doesn't try to make an explanation that will satisfy John or his disciples. Jesus is not concerned about meeting John's personal expectations. That's not what Jesus is concerned about. He's concerned about one thing doing his Father's will. And so Jesus doubles down on, on his mission. He says, nope, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Go back and tell John. The issue here is not with what Jesus is doing, but with John's expectations. And we look down to verse 5, and we, we see the things listed here by Christ uh, that he's, he's doing. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus gives them a list of these messianic deeds. Tell John I'm doing these things. And again, we saw these in Matthew 8 and 9 in detail. All of these things we read about Jesus doing. But Jesus' main point here in listing these deeds this way is not to tell the disciples the obvious. They, they know what they saw, right? Uh, they've seen and heard these things. He doesn't need to remind them. No, Jesus actually has a, a different purpose in listing these deeds the way he does. You see, John and his disciples need to be reminded of some Old Testament passages, specifically from Isaiah. Uh, Jesus' purpose is actually to help John realize that the expectations of the Messiah he has need to be more biblical. They need to be more biblical. So we're going to look at two of these passages that Jesus is alluding to here. The first is Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29. Flip there with me if you would. Isaiah 29. Verses 13 through 20 is where we're going to be at. Isaiah chapter 29. The context of Isaiah chapter 29 is the siege of Jerusalem, is the coming attack that Israel is going to experience uh, from the Assyrians. It is a, a chapter concerning primarily the judgment of God's unfaithful people. And so we look at chapter 29 and we go to verse 13 and we read this. The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker? He did not make me. For the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Is it not yet a little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, 
The deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. We'll stop there for a moment. So we see the very beginning of this portion here, uh, God speaking about the state of His people Israel, right? They, they have been ultimately unfaithful to Him from the heart, even though they've made good professions of faith with their lips. They say pious and holy sounding things, but their hearts are far from God. Isaiah even says that they teach commandments that they make up rather than God's law. Uh, it sounds kind of like the, the Pharisees, right? Some similarities there. And in the midst of this, while God's people are hard-hearted and sinful, and while their approach to Him, again, mirrors the very picture we see of the Pharisees, God says He'll do a new and wonderful thing. Something is coming that will be different. Something that will put the wisdom and discernment of fallen man to shame. And Isaiah describes this, starting in verse 17. There's a picture there of, of, of growth, of uh, beauty, right? In verse 17, the field being turned into a fruitful field and that into a forest. That is a, a picture of restoration. And then in verses 18, uh, verse 18, excuse me, we see what goes along with that. The deaf hear, the blind see. There is a coming redemptive time where God's people will once again rejoice in Him and be restored to Him and one of the, the signs of that time will be the blind seeing and the deaf hearing. These are some of the very things Jesus has been doing in his earthly ministry. He's been causing the deaf to hear. He has been giving sight to the blind. This great redemption of God's people that Isaiah is talking about is actually occurring. It's happening. Now, judgment is still in the picture, right? Again, we're thinking about John. Judgment's still in the picture here in verses 20 and 21. Where God's, uh, Isaiah, speaking the word of the Lord, says, The ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffers cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. We see that God's judgment is not divorced from this coming redemption, but that they are not necessarily going to happen at the same time. Right? It's not only God's judgment that occurs here. It's not isolated, though, from God's mercy. Right? And it's implied here that Who's the one doing these things? It's Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's the one doing these things. And so for Jesus to make this connection is a pretty strong claim that he's doing these works by divine power. He's bringing in this redemptive kingdom by God's power. And of course, we would extend that all the way to his own personal deity. So Jesus' point to John here is the, the deaf are hearing, the blind is seeing, this day of redemption and restoration, it's actually here, John. You're just looking for the wrong signs. Let's turn over to Isaiah 61 to see another passage that Jesus is referencing. Uh, Jesus, if you recall, told John, I'm preaching good news to the poor. And we'll read verses 1 through 4 here of Isaiah 61. Now, this text refers to the anointed one, to the Messiah, to what he would do. And here's what we read. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, 
to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And we see in verse 4, what is this anointed one sent to do? To bring good news to the poor. To bring good news to the poor. The very thing that Jesus just told John he has been doing. I'm bringing good news to the poor, John. Think of Isaiah 61. Think of your Old Testament, John. And Jesus in Luke 4 reads this portion of, of the Old Testament out loud in the temple and actually says, this is me. I'm fulfilling this. And we see here, the Messiah brings good news to the poor. So what's Jesus doing? He's calling John's attention to these Old Testament passages to prove to John, I'm actually doing the very things I'm supposed to be doing. These acts of miraculous mercy and redemption and healing, that's exactly what I'm supposed to be doing as, as, as the signposts of the messianic age coming in. The day of, of salvation, the day of God's glory being revealed is here, John. And Isaiah 61 doesn't ignore the judgment of God either. Right? The anointed one does all these things, pre preaches good news to the poor, but then in verse 3, he also proclaims the day of vengeance of our God. So John is not totally off base here in expecting judgment. He's not totally wrong. But he's missing part of the picture. A pretty important part of the picture. The day of judgment that John was looking for was not supposed to be the first thing Jesus did on earth. That wasn't the first part of his earthly ministry. We see the first thing in these passages being the mercy, grace, redemption of God being poured out on his sinful people. The kingdom that the Messiah is bringing in is not a physical, legal, triumphalent, uh, triumphalist military kingdom, which is what John was expecting, but a redemptive, healing, spiritual kingdom in which God's people's hearts are turned back to him. That's the primary need of the people of Israel at this point in, in history, in Jesus' day, isn't it? It's not to be freed from the oppression of the Romans. It's to be freed from the oppression of sin. Yes, judgment comes, but that's not the first job of the Messiah at this point in, in history. And that's what, John, or what Jesus himself says in John 12. He says, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. John 12, 46 through 47. What did Jesus come first to do as the Messiah? Save his people. Save his people. And that is on display in the way he's healing them, the way he's casting out demons, the way he's preaching good news to the poor, opening eyes and ears. The Bible's clear Jesus will bring judgment. It's very clear. But that's not the purpose of his first coming. It's not the person of his purpose of his first coming. The purpose of his first coming was to bear the judgment of God, not bring the judgment of God. John's expectations of the Messiah were not the same as God's expectation of the Messiah. And so at this point, John has a, a choice before him, doesn't he? He's going to think about these Old Testament passages. And the question John faces is, 
Will he change his expectations to meet the reality of who Jesus is? In other words, will he submit his expectations to God's will? Or will he refuse to accept this and cling to his expectations instead of God's will? And that's really Jesus' point in verse 6 of chapter 11. Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. This is another beatitude. We saw those in the Sermon on the Mount. It's another statement of blessing. And when Jesus says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me, he uses a, a particular Greek word, skandalizo. Sounds like scandal, right? Scandalous. That's where we get the word from. And this word, as it appears here, means to be, to be stumbled, to, to, to be tripped up, right? to be offended. Now, what does this have to do with John the Baptist's struggle? Well, a lot. A lot, actually. Now, it seems on the surface Jesus is just making this general statement that whoever's not offended by him, whoever doesn't reject him, will be blessed. And that's true. But there's actually something more specific Jesus is saying here in the context. Something that has a particular relevance for John and his disciples. This, this uh, concept of, of offense is actually another Old Testament reference. We see in the Old Testament references to a rock of stumbling, a rock of offense. And that's what Jesus is uh, alluding to here as well. We need to turn back to Isaiah chapter 8 to see this in the text. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 15. This will help us understand the major implications of Jesus' words. Starting in verse 13, Isaiah says this, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. We see there in verse 14 mention of that stone of offense, that rock of stumbling. And here Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, he is speaking of himself being a sanctuary to his people, as one who is uh, worthy of worship, of love, of reverential fear, yet at the same time, he is described as a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. And one commentator points out that this metaphor of God as a rock is a statement that actually could be good or bad. It could be good or bad in the sense of it could be good, as we read in the Psalms, uh, the Lord is my rock and my salvation. That's good, right? That's, a, that's a, um, a positive thing for us. We see redemption and salvation in that. Yet at the same time, there's a more negative picture of God being a rock that we see here in Isaiah chapter 8. Negative in the sense that this rock is not a, a, uh, a hiding place for unfaithful people, but it is a rock of judgment, a rock that will cause those who reject him to stumble, fall, be broken, and destroyed. In Isaiah's day, those who did not turn to fear the Lord would not find the sanctuary that is in him, but would stumble over him into destruction and judgment. Those who were offended by Yahweh, in other words, were not blessed. 
So Jesus is making an allusion to himself here in Isaiah chapter 8. And this is a reference that the apostles pick up on too. Uh, Both Peter and Paul make this same connection. Paul in Romans 9, 22 and 23 writes about the Jewish people and their response to Christ. He says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The Jews were stumbled over Christ. They stumbled over Christ because they could not receive the grace that was in him, but committed to try to earn their righteousness before God. They stumbled over Christ. Peter writes something similar, 1 Peter 2. 6 through 8, it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, right? The blessing is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter and Paul identify Christ as that stone of stumbling, that rock of offense. Of course, Christ is the the cornerstone, right? Those who are not offended by Him, those who believe in Him, they are built up as living stones, Peter says. Upon that foundation He holds together, they will be blessed, not put to shame. But at the same time, Peter says that those who do not believe stumble over this stone and makes the same reference to Isaiah chapter 8. So we, we see the basic principle at work here. Those who are not offended by Christ but believe in Him are blessed. Those who are offended by Christ and implicitly or explicitly reject him, will stumble and fall. But there's, again, some major implications that would be particularly relevant to John. Uh, First, we read in Isaiah 8, Yahweh is the one describing himself as this rock. That's the Lord God saying, I am that rock. And so for Jesus to make that same claim, again, is a claim of deity. That's a statement of identification as Yahweh. In other words, Jesus is not just saying, yeah, John, I'm the Messiah. He's going one step further. He's saying, I am actually your God. I am your God, the God of Israel in the flesh visiting my people. That's something John must consider seriously. And that's something that leads to the second implication. Jesus has not just come to die for sins, but he's come to bring in an entirely different chapter in history. He's come to fulfill all these promises of the Old Testament, centered around both redeeming, restoring, saving God's people, and bringing judgment, but not at the same time. So for John, for Jesus to say, John, the one who is uh, not offended by me will be blessed, that's an exhortation. He's saying to John, John, I know you're in prison. I know you're wondering if I'm really the Messiah. I'm wondering, I know you're wondering if, uh, if I am the one you should be looking for. But the one who is not offended by me, John, the one who does not stumble over me, will be blessed. In other words, John, don't let your expectations stumble you and keep you from me. Don't let your expectations cause you to be offended by me. That's what Jesus is saying to him. There's a warning and a promise here. He's saying to John and his disciples, if you submit your expectations to what God has said, and what I am doing and who I am, you will be blessed, John. Your disciples will be blessed. But on the other hand, John and disciples, if you do not, you will be put to shame. You will be put to shame. 
Ultimately, Jesus' response to John is this. I'm doing exactly what the scriptures say I should be doing, John. I'm doing what my Father expects of me. Don't lose heart, John. Don't give up because your circumstances are bad. Don't give up faith. Believe in me and you will be blessed, Jesus says. Submit your expectations to my Father's will. And Jesus knew that's exactly what John needed to hear. It's exactly what John needed to hear. And sometimes in the midst of our own discouragement and struggle with unmet expectations, we need someone to come alongside us and lovingly, but clearly and honestly, point us back to the Lord and remind us who we are and who God is. He is God, and we are not. And that's the last time we hear from John the Baptist in Matthew's Gospel. He's executed in Matthew 14. We don't hear anything more from him in between here and then. But I have no doubt that Jesus' response gave John the faith and courage he needed to press on and continue hoping in Jesus, the Christ. Sometimes we just need that word and that reminder, that simple truth, to put things in proper perspective. And maybe some of you need that encouragement this morning as well. Maybe some of you are struggling in your faith, or, or more accurately, struggling to keep faith because your expectations are not matching up with the circumstances God has placed you in. But friend, bring those questions, bring that wrestling, bring those confusions to the Lord in prayer. You may not accuse him, but you may ask him questions. He is patient, but he is honest. Remember the Savior he's provided for you. Jesus' whole ministry, right? Think about it like this. His whole ministry, his whole life and his death and resurrection was, you know, that was something nobody expected. Nobody expected that. Even though he told them again and again and again, this is what's going to happen, they could not get their expectations to line up with that. Right? The disciples were, they were running away. They were fishing, right? Just totally in the dumps after Jesus' death. They could not get their expectations to line up with what Jesus said. What Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection was what nobody expected. But what did God bring from that? A perfect salvation for sinners like you and like me. So if you find yourself asking, similar to John, is this really the Savior I should be following? Does God really care about me? Or, or you know, should, should I look for something else? Should I look for a different one to worship? Let me encourage you, submit your expectations to God and His will. You and I see so little of the picture, and God sees it all. Our expectations are not on the throne, but our good Heavenly Father is. So keep following the Redeemer and the King He's provided, Jesus Christ, and you will not be put to shame. Blessed are those who are not offended by Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, You are sovereign, You are holy, You are so different than us. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Who are we, Lord? We are but the clay in your hands. And what is the clay to say to the potter? Why have you made me like this? Lord, would you give us a a right perspective when it comes to our own expectations? And Lord, we are human. We struggle. We sin. But Lord, help us all the more when those expectations are not met to remember that you are sovereign, that we make our plans, but you direct our steps. 
And Lord, instead of uh, responding sinfully to unmet expectations, Lord, help us to respond in trust and in faith, even if we may not understand, even if we are disappointed, Lord. May we remember your faithfulness, your goodness, and our Redeemer, Christ our Lord. How could we doubt your love for us, Father, when we have the cross before us? The place where you displayed your Son, crucified, as proof of your love. And Lord, if you gave up your own Son for us, how will you not also with him give us all things? So Lord, help us to submit our expectations to what you define all things as, not what we think that might mean for us. Help us to know you according to your word and to base our expectations according to your word. Lord, we thank you for your patience with us in our doubting and our questions, in our wrestling. But Lord, we thank you for your clarity, your honesty with us too. Lord, we are called to be people of truth. And even when the truth does not feel good, Lord, it is something firm for our feet to stand on. And so we thank you for your word that we've heard this morning. For your word is truth. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.